On today's episode, Dave interviews actor Craig Kakowski. Craig has appeared on Year of the Dog and Community. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. And then today, it just exploded. That's great. It's crazy. Um, so, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it, and if you haven't, that's all good. Yeah, I listened to the one with Steven, and I listened to the one with Susan. God, that Susan one was really, really good. <laughs> that was great. She's so fucking good, and we had to go through... I think they had to do a little editing of it because uh, I think the producer was a little concerned because she used the N-word and she was a little concerned about it. (laughs) I I don't know. Was it in there? I I didn't hear an N-word. Yeah, we didn't hear an (laughs) N-word. We didn't hear an N-word. But you never know. So so the great thing about what we do is we just start. You book Susan Messing. You're going to get what you're going to get. You're going to get what you get. And then everybody's going to be inspired by it. And Susan has... Because again, looking at the metrics of this whole thing, uh, it's Colbert and then it's Susan. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's so popular. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I, I, I don't know if you've heard me say it. We just start. So we're just starting. It's not, as you, I might have noticed, it's not like, and so Craig, what have you been doing? So right. we just start. We just start talking. We just, we just continue talking. <laughs> um, the, thing, the thing that I love about, uh, 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 love about Susan is, I mean, it's like jumping on the Susan train. Like she's going anyway. It's like I gotta jump on, get ready, get jump on the Susan train, and she's going. Yeah. But what's happened is, and you're you're like this, and I know, like there are a few of us who are like who are these people, whether you like it or not, we're elder statesmen. Yeah, I don't know how I found myself. <laughs> Isn't elder it interesting? It's very weird. It's really weird, like the idea that time, I guess, well, happens. It's, yeah, it's time, <laughs> and it's also duration. And I mean time. I, Time is duration, but there's also like the, the, the keeping. We're we're still there. We're still there. You're still there. Um, Dassey's still there, of course. Um, uh, uh, Joe Bill's still there. Uh, Tellerico's still there. Like we're all still there. And other people, they haven't given up. They've just done other things. Yeah. Well, I feel like <clears throat> like our generation. Uh, of Chicago improvisers, it seems like the first generation has just kept improvising in some form <laughs> and that we're just going to do it for the rest of our lives and that's just right. a thing we do. Like, I remember, uh, you know, name people would come back and they just clearly hadn't been doing it for a while and they were really nervous about it and they were still talented. Right. But, like, they weren't keeping their chops up. Right. And so they were freaking out about having to do an improv show. I don't know if you had that with people coming in to do sets well, and well, stuff. Well, t- Tim Meadows, Timmy. Yeah. You know, Timmy said, well, I'd really like, I said, come on, man, when you come up on stage, you know, we're on main stage. Come and join us on main stage. God, it's been a while. But now he's, he's, he's. He does uh, that show at Canali and Brad yeah. Morris. So, yeah. yeah it seems so like he got interested in getting his chops back and everything. Exactly. But I would imagine, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So there's those people. Uh, but there are also people that you think, well, you want to improvise with us? Um the guy, uh, he was in Deliverance. Uh, he wasn't, he was in... Uh, uh, Burt Reynolds. Okay, there's Burt Reynolds. Ned Beatty. Beatty. But there's the other guy. Uh, John Voight. John Voight. Ronnie, Ronnie Cox. Ronnie Cox. So Ronnie Cox came <laughs> The fourth Ronnie most Cox. famous guy from Deliverance. I know. Maybe fifth after the banjo boy. He's, <laughs> he played the guitar on that. Did you know that? He was in the band that played that, but he didn't play it on the stage. Really? He didn't play it on the screen. That's what he said. Okay. And so he actually played, I remember he played dueling banjos with, um, he played the guitar, 
and uh, Ruby Streak, the the uh, musical director, she played the piano. And I think that they they had a blackout. Danella, Paul Danella did a blackout where it was a it was a dueling banjos blackout, and Ronnie Cox came and did it. He was in town for a he was in town for a week. Um, doing the Untouchables television show uh, in Chicago, and boy was he—he was—he was one of the best people that ever came to Maine. That's stage. great. Like afterwards, I, I said, "Who's the greatest actor you know?" And he said, "Ned Beatty. Ned Beatty is clearly the greatest actor that I know." And he talked about how fearless he was, and certainly in Deliverance, how unbelievably sure. fearless he was in that movie. I have not seen Deliverance in years, though I am still clearly able to remember the four stars of it. But uh, <laughs> but you remember Squeal Like a Pig. I squeal Like a Oh, how can you forget Squeal Like a Pig? Right, right, right. Most famous male rape scene in movie history. Most famous male rape scene in movie history. You're trying to top me. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm, trying to keep, I'm not trying to top you. I'm, I'm even going, what's the second most? I was like, what? Like Shawshank that, Redemption? Right. Right, right. That's some good. To, 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 uh, Midnight Express. Midnight Express is probably the most violent. Well, they're yeah. both raped. It's not like that's a gentle rape. That's a gentle rape. He was gently raped. Man, I feel like I'm. I'm in Susan Messing territory already. On this. How did we get into male rape? <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're Three in minutes you're into in the, the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's so interesting because when I was when I was in the theater company that performed the prisons, Geese Theater Company that performed the prisons. We did, I, that's what I did before I went to I.O. Right. Um, and we, it was non-comedic and um, it was non-comedic and it was mask work and we dealt with male rape, but in a, on stage. It's, it's weird to think. How, how did you hook up with that company? I auditioned for, I had the shittiest audition that I ever had. I did, a, actually I did an audition for a play in Chicago um, that was, I, instead of coming in with a prepared monologue, I don't know what I was thinking. I came in with a, a, a memorized Lawrence Ferlinghetti poem mm. called Coney Island of the Mind, oh. which is really a great poem. And it was, just, it was just horrible. And I walked up stage and I remember the director saying, what made you do that? And I thought, at the moment, I thought, I guess I didn't think about it. Yeah. I just did it. And I thought, well, I never heard from that person again. And then I got a phone call from the director of Geese Company saying, this guy gave me your name. Would you like to audition for my company? Mm -hmm. And we and I remember he was in town because they were based out of Iowa City, Iowa, and they were, they had a, a space uh, in a Sears, a warehouse that Sears owned on Ashland, and we went there and I auditioned and I was and they said here's a mask I want we want you to and I worked with the group and we did that and I got booked and then the next thing I know like literally the next week I am down I'm I'm living on their school bus. And I'm down in um, Joliet Correctional Center, wow. like the next week in Joliet Correctional Center. Uh, I've never been in a prison in any in any capacity. Well, what was interesting was for crime or mask work. I have been, uh, <laughs> and the crime of mask work. <laughs> what was weird was I think they closed that joint down. That's what we call it. Yeah. They closed that joint down, and then I did the big um, house. Yeah, and then I did a movie, and I did a movie in that. In, they they did a movie in Joliet Correctional Center. Really? Yeah, yeah. Natural Born Killers. That um, was a movie. <laughs> it was really fun to be in a movie, and and like I was I was a punk, and I had like I was I, I was sassed off, and it was just such a great sassing oh. off, you know. Um, you're so you're doing Community now, and the writing on that show is really great. 
It is. And your I, character is, I'm sorry, I just want to cut you off. Um, <laughs> your character is so... Well, let me get more praise before I, before yeah, no, I answer. No, no. Yes. And, and your character just seems like it, it's, it's, it's really being molded toward you. And it seems like you had a hookup. I'm saying a hookup in terms of they cast you in that and then they keep using more and more of you. And as it keeps going on, um, they get your voice. And it's just so lovely to see that. It seems effortless. It's really fun. And I haven't improvised one word uh, in eight appearances on the show because the writing is so tight. And they know exactly who the character is. And the more they see me do, the more they know how to write for me. And so it's kind of that classic sitcom thing of being a collaboration between the actors and writers, but I never meet the writers. I just, you know, show up when they tell me to show up. I see the script. I'm like, oh, this is great. Oh, man. And it it is... sounds like the kind of thing Officer Kikowski would say. <laughs> I know. And it's your name. <laughs> um, and it's it, it's so awesome just because there's, 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 there's an energy that you have on stage, and they've also captured it in that character as well. There's... Um, there's a tone of your, your uh, I'm going to say this word, and it's just so hard to say. It's not hard to say. It's just, it sounds so, <laughs> but there's, an, uh, there's a tone in your artistry. The, the, the fact artistry. That, you know what yes. I mean? There's a tone in your artistry, and what I mean by that is your voice, the voice that is the physicalization of who you are, and there's a oneness to all that. And they seem to have caught that stage, that, that you seem to put the stage thing into that. Am I making any sense there? I, all I'm hearing is you are awesome, Bukowski, and I'm I'm enjoying it. So, however you want to phrase it, uh, I will I will take but the there's, compliment. But there's there's that there, there's just such a groundedness to that character in its flightiness as well. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's weird because, and I'm sure you feel this way too as a performer of like that is me, but there's also many me's within me. <laughs> I, and that's one one side of me, and I'm uh, I'm going to shoot something uh, for Veep this week in mm-hmm. Baltimore, mm-hmm. Uh, and that was another case where I auditioned, and uh, I went in. They flew me for rehearsals last week in Baltimore, which is cool. It never happened to me before. Yeah, I just flown out to rehearse with the cast because they developed the script through improv. Uh-huh. So a completely different process than Community, which is very much, you know, just uh, Dan Harmon is God, and just the. Uh, <laughs> You know, it goes straight from the voice right. of, uh, from the mind of Dan Harmon onto the page, right. you know, exactly how he wants it. So uh, Armando Iannucci, who created uh, Veep, works completely different. You know, he likes the dialogue to be super naturalistic. Right, I can tell. Uh, and he wants a lot of contribution from the actors and how it gets written. So uh, I auditioned for this role and then went in for the table read uh, for rehearsals last week and then realized they had rewritten the character to be more like me. <laughs> Great. And I'm just coming in for a guest star part, you know, right. on one episode. So that, that was pretty cool to wow, see. Wow, that's really cool to see. And this guy that I'm playing is another me that is a completely different side of me than Officer Kukowski, mm-hmm. where this guy is like just like super smiley and positive uh, all the time and just like can't be phased. Because <laughs> uh, it's such a cynical, uh, profane show. It is. Have you seen it? Yeah. It's so, yeah. so fun. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I, I have a scene where Julia Louis-Dreyfus just curses in my face and I just keep smiling and staying positive the, the whole time. That's, and I think that there are a lot of people who would look at, uh, at work they do and, they, and, they, and they'll say, or the, the actor that they are, and they'll say, I'm, the, I'm a kind of actor who does this. And when I hear somebody say that, I feel like, why would you do that to yourself? Why would you, why would you pigeonhole yourself into yeah. that as opposed to whatever's going to come up, I'm going to take that? Yeah, 
I, I think as artists, that is the smarter uh, take. As as people in this business, uh, there is sometimes a smartness in just kind of knowing of like, well, I'm do this thing. I'm going to stay in this vein the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who get cast just like doing the same thing time after time. And I found that's been the hardest thing for me in Hollywood, like figuring out what my thing is. Because when I improvise, you know, I, I might play an 80-year-old black woman. Right. I might play uh, a dinosaur. Right. I might play, you know, an Austrian bodybuilder, you know. And, and yet, at the same time, it's what you're saying. Like, this is a different aspect of you. A different. Uh, this is... You are all those things and you are none of those things and yet you are open to all those things um, and not to see yourself cast. When, you're imp- when we're improvising, we can be those yeah. people. And I think that that's the joy of what it is. That's one of the joyous things of what of, of aspects of, of improv is who are you? I could do it because you're going to say that that's who I am. You're going to agree with me that that's who I am. I am a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. I am an 80-year-old black woman. And to be able to, to jump all over that, it's just so freeing in that. <laughs> to me, it's my antidote from show business. Mm-hmm. You know, like That's my time to just play and be anything I want and do the kind of thing that I want to do. So it's the thing that's kept me sane in 10 years in Hollywood, you know. Uh, it's a completely different thing from this thing where I try to audition and get roles and things and make, make money for it. You know, and like, you're having a hell of a year. That's my though. joy. I'm, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm am having a good year. You know, it's. Uh, I'm 43 now. I moved here when I was 33, mm-hmm. and I think it's just taken a while for me to kind of get into like my character actor wheelhouse. So I think I'm. I'm kind of aging into the roles that I should really. But be what else playing. is going on there? Because it's not just a matter of time and duration. You know what I mean? It's not just a matter of that. It's a matter of other things as well. Sure. It's com- attitude. Attitude, confidence. Confidence. I-, I got into Second City on my third audition mm-hmm. uh, when uh, I didn't give a shit about it anymore. Right. You know? right. And I right. was also just very secure with who I was as a performer at that point. So The idea of not giving a shit, because I think that we've seen a lot of people who say, i got to get into Second City, i got to get into Second City, and those people don't get into Second City. The neediness is off-putting. Man, it really is, and you can... St- <laughs> It's a stink, and you can really, really <laughs> sense it. And I was, but I gotta say, um, I never wanted to get into Second City. It wasn't anything that I wanted to do. I'm from Chicago. Yeah. You know, and uh, and so it was like, oh, other people do that. I don't do that. And then I just took classes. And as I've said before on this podcast, every single day that I was there, if it ended that day, that's great. Because again, I didn't move to Chicago right. to do that. Yeah. I was already there. Yeah, you know, from what I understand, like that first, uh, obviously it had a name, you know, from the time that it opened, but I think when SNL premiered in the mid-70s, that first generation of like people in their late 70s, early 80s were the kind of first people who had specifically sought out Chicago Second City as my place to get famous and get a TV show. Right. You know, so sometimes I hear that described as one of the darker periods there, though I'm sure there's been many. And I was there for some dark periods as well. Uh, but uh, I, I I can't imagine moving to Chicago now in 2012 or, or starting anywhere, starting in L.A. or New York, you know. I don't know how I did it. Like now, as you said, I'm an older statesman. And right. I just kind of like found myself in that role and I, I kind of revel in it. But uh, it's daunting for a young person. I can't imagine. To, I mean, 
get in at the ground floor on this crazy improv thing and try to make a name for yourself, you know? I never thought that was... I know that that wasn't anything that you ever wanted to do to make a name for yourself in terms of that. I don't think it was. I, again, I just kept doing it because I loved it. You know? Right. Like, uh, when I started, I was at the Wrigley side, uh, mm-hmm. upstairs, you know, on Clark Street, shitty bar. Right. You know, maybe 10 people in the audience. Right. You know, usually all friends or other improvisers. And this was like Adam McKay, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, right. you know, well, Matt Well, Andy Besser. Richter was also there, too. Andy, I think, was already doing Conan by the time I oh, started was. there. Okay, but, uh-huh. but, yeah, but he was, you know, part of it at that time right. when it was, you know, you had no idea that any of these people would become famous. They were just doing it for the sheer love of it. They were doing it. For, I, I think that that's such an important point to say that you're doing it for the sheer love of it. Because when you start looking at what the end result, you feel the end result should be then you're missing where it is that you are in that moment. Yeah. And then you get into entitlements and, you know, and what other people are doing, what other people's path is. Oh, that jealousy is so fucked up. It's just so fucked up. And I, and and I, I'm I'm watching it right now, and some friends of mine, and I'm looking at it thinking, what? Stop talking about other people. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop looking at other people, other people's career. Just stop it. Yeah. Because it's it's killing your it's it's not killing your spirit because the spirit can't be killed. But what's happening is it's quashing your spirit, and you're engaging in it. And every time you feel it coming up, and you have a choice of going, I'm not going to deal with that, or Maybe it's time I wallow in some jealousy right now. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's horrible. Yeah. But if you felt that way, if you felt that way, you probably wouldn't have given it a third time to get into Second City. No, yeah. I, I think at that point, I, I usually I hit that level where uh, I'm like, oh, you know, I know a bunch of people there now. <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem as daunting for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt familiar. Like I knew, you know, most of the auditors at that point. I right. knew other people who were working there, so it didn't seem so unreachable. Whereas, you know, going in the first couple auditions, it was just this temple of comedy, and of like I wasn't worthy of it in my mind. Why? You know? It's so interesting the idea of I'm not worthy of it. I'm not worthy of it because that that concept of I'm not worthy of it deals with. With with the way that you the way your relationship with the world your relationship with yourself your relationship with relationships your relationship with <laughs> with your career your relationship with your parents like I'm not worthy like who the fuck are you to say that you're not worthy yeah I keep going to that too and and I look I, again when I hear people say that I I I engage with them and say listen to what you're saying mm-hmm. and then if they go yeah but it's different for you it's like okay. Great. And apparently there's a catchphrase that I say, and it is, if you say so. Um, but it's, but you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and now I think I'm finding that it's the same with TV shows. Like at this point, like I've guessed it on enough TV shows or I've met actors who've come to do, you know, Thrilling Adventure Hour right. or other projects that I've done. And it's the whole thing is just demystified of just like, okay, they're on TV, but they're also, they're just... Uh, they're either weirdos, you right. know, in some cases, or for the most part, they're really sweet, nice, normal people right. who are all, who also get neurotic about the same stuff that I get neurotic about. Right? You know, right. And, and like and, all actors are needy and weird, and of like these people are no different just because they have a cool job on TV. Clearly, you know? and all the all the projects. And what 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 projects are you doing? You're doing uh, the the. Um, I'm, <laughs> I can't, I can't even think of the name. The suspenseful 
The Thrilling Adventure Hour. The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Formerly the Thrilling Adventure and Supernatural Suspense That's Hour. That's why, in my that's, mind, because yeah. like, right now... We dropped that a while okay, ago so because it's a Adventure mouthful. Hour. Right, and that's why I'm going, what's it called now? Because I don't see that name called. <laughs> yeah. So that's Ben Acker and Ben Blacker, and that's you and Gagliardi. And, Mark uh, Evan Jackson. Mark Evan Jackson. Paul uh, F. Tompkins, right. Bridget Brewster. Right. Annie Savage. Uh, we've been doing that show for about eight years. Eight we, years. We do it at Largo at the Coronets, and uh, that's another thing where the visibility of that is just grown exponentially because even in everybody the last in year. it is enjoying themselves and just doing it as far as i'm con- as far as i've seen and i've seen the show a couple of times they're doing it just to do it it's for pure joy right. yeah and and then we get these we had john ham this last weekend came in Shut and did it up. uh he I was amazing he, is he doing is his career doing okay i think he's all right yeah mm-hmm. don't worry about that ham okay i won't <laughs> Um, so he did it. What the fuck? So we he always get these amazing people right. coming in, but then they're nervous about doing it because it's it's live theater. You know, right. we are holding a script. You know, so mm-hmm. it couldn't be easier. You don't have to memorize anything. Right. But we're also very secure in what we do. We're good at what we do. Right. And uh, so they're a little nervous about doing that. So it's always kind of charming to see these big stars come in and be deferential to us. So that's been another you, kind of demystifying Hollywood and thing that's, for I was me. just about to say, the, de- the demystification is just such an important part of it all because it, if, you, if you look at someone, on, if you put someone on a pedestal, you're putting yourself down, you're really not able to communicate with them on a human level. Yes. You know, the fact is, you know, you say, yeah, in Dylan's line, like even, even the president is naked sometime. Like that idea, yeah, that's, that's great demystification, but it is a, it is a job. It is a job and it is a career. And if you don't consider yourself in that career or start looking at yourself as your product that you sell, you cannot make it. Yeah. And also the idea of you don't know how this is going to turn out. Like the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Did I get it right? Yes. The Thrilling Adventure <laughs> Hour. Um, I'm having lunch with, with Acker tomorrow, so I better get that right. <laughs> um, the Thrilling Adventure Hour, it was just about these people coming together. And if you want to take apart the people and go, well, Paget was on this show, you know, and, and Acker's written, written that, and Blacker's written that, and all that sort of stuff, that can paralyze you yeah. totally. They're just my friends that I meet up with once a month and do this fun little show. <laughs> exactly. And the profile of it has gotten, you know, humongous, but I'm, it's still... It just like meeting up with my friends once a month and doing this show, just like we were doing at Embar eight years ago. You right. Know? And there was no goal for it to be anything. It was its own thing, and it was just for our own joy. Exactly. And and now, it's is, is the graphic novel going to happen? Yeah. We had a <coughs> Kickstarter campaign. I forget what we raised. Like upwards of $100,000 or something no! like that on Kickstarter. No! So we unlocked three goals. One of which is a graphic novel that uh-huh. some you know well-known comic book artists are going to do mm-hmm. based on the characters from the show. Right. So Akron Black are writing that. We're doing a behind-the-scenes web series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be kind of like a Muppet show thing. Uh, so we're going to be playing ourselves backstage at Largo getting ready to do the show. Mm-hmm. And then we're doing a full-out concert film of shooting one performance at Largo with an audience uh, with a multi-camera setup and everything. Jonathan Demme? I believe Jonathan Demi is coming in to do it. Uh, David Byrne will be uh, guest starring in it. Exactly. I will say that Stop Making Sense is not only my favorite concert film, but one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, I period. love it. I love it. I, but you know, looking at David Byrne and looking at the talking heads in general, like there's just, and David Byrne for sure, because I've seen him, I think I've seen him three times uh, live. And his, I saw him at the Greek a few years ago, and his energy is so fantastic. Yeah. And there's concert footage of... Um, 
of uh, them playing a concert in Rome. Uh, what's their What's their guitar player on the concert? Uh, uh, Jerry Harrison. Light. No, Remain in Light. Oh. Uh, oh, Brian Eno. No, 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 no. But <laughs> was he a guy from Funkadelic? Yeah, I can't remember the name. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! But to watch these guys on stage and Anton Fear. No, we're going to get there. Um, Audacity's a fan of this guy. Yeah. Um, really great guitar player. Gosh darn it, I'm going to remember it. And people are going, people are shouting at their, um, yeah. at their iPad, pod pad phones right now. Um, I'm not going to try. I'm going to let it go. Um, but to watch these guys, the energy that they have on stage, it's just so contagious. And it's one of those things where that... Again, I'm going to get very Southern California. Like the spirit that those people have, the synergy, because you cannot help but get energy from that energy and hold yeah. on to it. And and um, if you want to, uh, you know, again, a de- the demystification at that point for me is the energy that I get from that because it's like I got that energy. I know that energy. I know that focus. I know that movement. I know all of that stuff, and I love watching it. Yeah. Uh, it, to me, it just keeps coming back to joy. I keep, I hate to keep bringing up that word, but I'm mm-hmm. like, that's what I always take away from that movie is just their sheer joy of performing and performing with each other. Right, right. And that joy of performing with each other is such a huge part too because um, the people that I get to work with, the people that you get to work with, the people that we get to watch, um, there's such joy coming out of that. And I think that with, I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but the joy of the, an improviser watching an improviser succeed is so different than a stand-up watching a stand-up succeed. <laughs> yes. Because a, an improviser watching an improviser succeed, you go, ah, look what you did. What a great thing you just did. Um, a stand-up watching a stand-up succeed is like, that was funny. <laughs> right? You know? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I admire stand-ups greatly and mm-hmm. for their bravery in doing that. I've never wanted to do it. Right. I've never come close to doing anything like that. But it's a, it's a cutthroat fucking business. Yeah, right. And uh, there's a lot of pain that goes into that type of performing. You know, that a lot of, you know, they need to do that to work through their pain. Yeah, and- I, I hear that a lot and I always feel like, Okay, I I don't know. I, I, I have, has anybody asked you this? Because they certainly haven't asked me this. Um, um, have you had a lot of pain in your life? Because it's just like a lot of comedians have to have a lot of pain in their life. And I'm like, no, I really didn't have. Much I'm a pain pretty in happy person. I, really I, have, I had a very <laughs> functional uh, family, um, you know. So maybe that's how I found my way into improv. You know, know. right? The idea that everything works out all the time. Why wouldn't I, I want to have, a, have a, 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 a family that I put together uh, through through the arts? I don't have. I don't have any of that. You know, yeah. my folks were divorced, but you know, you know, for me, I don't. Whose aren't? Right. Are you? Are you? Nope. They're still together. <laughs> I was thinking. After yours 45 together, years. Right. Uh, aren't, yours aren't. But, uh, you know, half, half of people's parents are divorced. Right. right. But it's also, <laughs> I think, I don't need that. I don't need that in order to make this work. Yeah. Because if I had that anger or if I had to deal with issues or if I felt that there were issues that I, that I, I, I needed to hold on to in order for my art to be, uh, to burgeon and blossom, that just seems like a burden for me to, to hold on to. T.J. Jagodowski's theory is that only children uh, have a harder time being improvisers <laughs> because they're not used to sharing their toys with their uh, siblings. Only children. Only, only children. Not yeah, only children. Sing, only yeah. children. Yes. yes. Single, single child uh, families. Yes. <laughs> Do I know any single child fam- Single child. Um, Amanda Tate uh-huh. is an only child, uh, and she's a good improviser. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure, there, yeah, I'm sure yeah. there are exceptions, but... I, th- I also know so many improvisers who come from huge families. You right. know, dwarf. Well, 
Well, uh, or Pat Finn. Yeah. Pat Finn is like five or six in his family. Yeah. Um, Joel Murray has so many. Yeah. Uh, Liza Coyle, uh, she's got a lot. Really great improvisers right there. You're one of two or three. I'm the oldest of three. You're oldest of three. Um, I'm the oldest of three as well. Now, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, <laughs> but I also believe that if you think it has something to do with it, then it has something to do with it. If you sure. don't think that it has something to do with it, it doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, is Liz the middle? Liz is the youngest. Liz is the youngest. My sister Allison uh, is a lawyer, and uh-huh. uh, she uh, lives in the suburbs of Chicago with her uh, kids and her husband. And Allison... Never, never got into comedy. Well, okay, then this might have something to do with the question I'm going to ask about Allison. Um, is, does, did, was Allison ever a middle child? That, with that, with that... I, mean, I know that she is, just mathematically and historically. She... Uh, Energy-wise, within my family, she is the uh, oldest child, and I'm the middle child. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> She's about a, We're very close in age. She's about a year and a half younger than me. Uh-huh. Uh, she always had a very strong personality. You know, I, I think I have kind of a classic middle child uh, persona. Which, which, which is like, is that the thing? Like, I'm being left out, or what is that? Because I don't get that from you. I, I, I think less so of uh, chip on the shoulder of being left out. It's more just kind of like left to your own devices, Got just kind of doing your own thing. Great. Yeah. Uh, because uh, as a kid, I would just uh, I would read by myself for mm-hmm. hours. Uh, I would play with my Noah's Ark uh, and just create little stories with the uh, with the animals. Uh, didn't have any Bible learning, but I did have a Noah's Ark that I played with. Uh-huh, uh, well, nobody associated. It was just like yeah, there's this old guy and these animals. Animals and a are, boat. are cool, especially when there's two of them. But you, so and you also went to William and Mary, right? Mm-hmm. Not much I know. You, you and John Stewart went to William and Mary too. He did, yeah. Um, a few years before, uh, before I did. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn Close, mm-hmm. another alum. Uh, but we have an improv group there uh, for years now. Uh, I was there from '87 to '91. Uh, I joined the group in '89, I think. Mm-hmm. And we were a group. Um, did you ever see the train company play there? No, but they did come there when I, I was, was a there. freshman. You, you were probably I, in that touring company. Yeah. 89 maybe, or 87, 88? I, it, it was probably 87, 88. Yeah. It was the worst meal we ever fucking had. <laughs> Craig, it was just a horrible situation. Like, it was me and Rubano and Carell. And, oh, man. Uh, and, and it was Jackie Hoffman and maybe Liza Coyle. And a sorority fed us in the basement and some in the basement of some building I can't remember what building it was it was in the basement of some building and they brought in a, this cart and they were all laughing around the cart with all this food and and they dropped the food off and they put it on the table and they ran out laughing and we're like what the fuck is that and it was like the most overcooked pasta it was like it wasn't pasta anymore it was sort of like it wasn't it was, it was no longer pasta it was no longer pasta and they ran out it had it and, evolved into another form it was it was really it definitely evolved into something else that was harder and less pasta. And um, I remember them running out and Rabano going, what are they, why are they, you know John Rabano? I've met him, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, why are they running out? And it's like, what the fuck is this? And we just heard the kids running down the hallway. I remember clearly like, that was the worst meal I ever had on the road of anywhere, even prisons. That was that was that was twenty five years later. You still remember still, William and Mary for that, oh man, not for, that for being the thing. second oldest college in the nation or right. Thomas Jefferson's uh, no, or alma mater, right? Uh, or, or like the the one like Steely Dan song. That, yeah, I was like, just talking with uh, with Paul Tompkins about that the other day because he had asked me where I went to school, uh-huh. and he's like, "You guys must have listened to a lot of Steely Dan." I'm like, 
Oh, let me tell you, uh, at parties, my old school would go up. And uh, so the rumor was that Donald Fagan had had a, was dating a girl who went to William & Mary. Because there's also a reference to Annandale, which is a town, yeah, right. town in northern Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and that uh, he got kicked off the campus somehow. Uh-huh. Completely made up, urban myth. You know, just... Uh, uh, I guess they interviewed Donald Fagan. He's like, "Oh no, I just like the way it's scanned. I needed, a, I needed a college. Never been there. Never been to Williamsburg. Never, yeah, never been to Annandale. Of like, I was just looking for uh, things that scanned. That's uh, so correctly funny. In the song, it's so funny because you know? when you're when you're, I think when you're a songwriter, you don't get the same. Like, I don't think anybody would accuse. No, I don't think anybody would say to Hemingway. So, what was it like when you were in the boat by yourself fishing? Yeah, it's like that didn't happen to me. That happened to a character, so no one would add. No one would say that, or they would say, "Oh, I saw Craig Kukowski. I didn't know he was a dinosaur." <laughs> you know, no one would say that. But when you write a song, immediately people people assume it's personal. People assume it's personal. They assume it's personal. And I think, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea of the troubadour coming in and singing on it and, and is wearing his heart on his sleeve and all of that. But uh, you know, I think Dylan. I don't know. Did Dylan throw that off, or did Dylan make that happen? I think Dylan made that happen, actually. Yeah. 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 Because he was coming from this folk tradition that was very much in the Woody Guthrie of like where you might assume any sort of character. You might play an 80-year-old black woman and sing a song about yourself. But (laughs) I think... He then he you know pissed off all the folkies by do, starting to write these personal love songs right. and and stuff like that and closed the Brill Building down probably immediately <laughs> you know like, yeah like, like all those people going off oh, but yeah then Dylan gets pissed when people start to ask him about his songs and his personal connection but then when you write a uh, uh, this is odd because uh, I, <laughs> the song that was playing on my. Uh, iPod as I was driving in here was Sarah by mm-hmm. Dylan, right. which is probably his most naked song. Which Clearly. is like this is just this is just about my wife and the divorce we're going through. Well, but although he does say no, it's not really about him. It's like if you say so. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, this is a, a character who had a wife named Sarah exactly. who's getting divorced it's from her. It's so weird. Yeah. It's so weird. I love, I, but I I love Dylan so much. And Blood on the Tracks is one of those albums. There's a book out uh, that I read this year about the making of Blood on the Tracks and. How phenomenal that was! And he went to New York. He he did some uh, some tracks from some songs. He recorded some songs from Blood on the Tracks in New York, and then went. This isn't going to work. Went up to visit his brother in Minnesota, and his brother said, "Look, I know some people, some artists here, some musicians here. Why don't we throw together these musicians?" will get some recording studio time in uh, in Minneapolis. And he went, great, let's try that. They did. It fucking clicked. Yeah. And they're like, really, all these artists are really excited. We're going to be on Dylan's album. Everybody's going to know that we're on Dylan's album. The printing comes out of the album. None of them are listed. Dylan says, look, I know that none of you are listed. When the next printing comes out, it's gonna, you guys are going to be on it. They're not on it. They're not on it. They're not on it. And, someone, and, and so they're interviewing people saying, well, you know, if you want to be pissed off about it, you can be pissed off about it. Or you could just go, you know, I know that I'm on that album. Yeah, that's me. And you can hear that for all eternity. Right. Yeah. And that's tough. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, I, and then there's what, you know, the shit that we do that uh, I was caught out of a um, Roseanne episode. And I keep making money on that. I just keep. I make really? So, oh yeah. Still get residuals. To I still this get day. residuals. Yeah. I, you know, I'm listed in the credits. Thanks to our union. Yeah. Oh, thanks to our union. <laughs> thanks to our union. We're protected in that way. Are you vested in the union? Are you getting a pension? Not yet. I don't think. Really? I don't know. 
No, I'll look into it. I was really surprised. I'm vested in uh, equity. I'm vested in after and SAG. It's like, how did that happen? Huh. I guess I get statements for it. I don't know. I don't really want to discuss my uh, personal finances. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> on, I, on this show. Right. I, I don't mean it. Like, at the same time, to be an act, like the work that we do, there's that, which we don't even think about. Yeah. Which I think... You know, I don't think about it. I don't think I gotta get some work in order to have that happen, or I gotta get some work in order to get, because um, it doesn't help. I gotta get insur- I gotta get work in order to get insurance. I don't think about that, yeah. but I do know that when I don't think about that, it's not magically that it happens. It's like there's a calmness that's going to that 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 comes from it. Yeah, I I, I like knowing that uh, that I'm gonna be taken care of. Exactly, because our again this choice that we make a choice. The fact that this is what it is that we're doing is. It, well, it's just as tenuous as anything else. It really is just as tenuous as anything else. It's It's been great having my kid sister in the business as well. You know, it was really tough for my parents uh, when I chose to go into this field because they just hadn't, you know, they were, they couldn't be more supportive of me. Uh, you know, they were never like, you know, good luck out there in the wilderness. <laughs> You're going to get a real job. You know, mm-hmm. they were always very encouraging of me, but they're also like, we don't know anything about this we don't know how to help you wow. it just doesn't work the way any other business does right you know so it is such a such a foreign thing my, and my sister who's eight years younger ended up kind of following me to chicago and getting an improv and sketch and right. you know and she's done well, I loved, great I for herself her as boom. well yeah liz boom and i i and she boy there was just such a great energy from liz and i just loved watching her and playing with her and collaborating with her and all that there's just that awesome energy that she has and she's such a she's obviously a separate person she's not you and i i was like oh yeah and she's craig's sister and all <laughs> that um but i i remember Carell telling me that his folks said what do you want to do and he said i want to be an actor and they went well let's see what we can do to make that happen hmm. like oh there's that way of doing it too <laughs> you know because it, what if if you said you want to be a plumber um, I always go to plumber. If somebody says they want to be a plumber, nobody ever goes. Nobody ever says, "Well, that's really tough. You know, it's really, really hard." You know, there's yeah. like because that it is just as hard doing anything. Exactly, <laughs> doing anything is just as hard. And I was somewhere the other day. Uh, oh, I was at the university, uh, university in, in Utah, um, and there was a woman uh, uh, who is. They were talking about. Um, uh, we're having a a program where submit one act plays. And if you have an idea, submit it. And I want you to think about this. Someone's got to get in, and it might as well be you. And I love that. Yeah. You know, someone's got to do it, and it might as well be you. And it, 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 it's that demystification. It's one thing that I, I tell my students. Uh, you know, we, uh, I do an exercise uh, called Thank You Statues. You may have done or seen before which is just it's kind of like freeze tagging in a way of just like one person freezes another pose another person comes out joins them in some sort of complimentary pose somebody from the back line has to yell out a title to the pose any title will do Uh and you just have to kind of sell it you know um crocodile attack great and then the person says thank you and leaves uh other person stays up there and the person who titled it runs out with the new pose great so So it's just it's a one process it's a one-off right one-off you know so it's just Mm -hmm. like pose pose title pose pose title right uh and so the, the big thing about that is telling them that 
90% of the battle in improv is energy, confidence, and decisiveness. Absolutely. And owning your impulses and trusting your impulses and just being able to articulate your impulses right away. Right. And I think people are constantly rejecting their impulses because of like, well, that's not good enough. That's not smart enough. That's not funny enough. Right. Rather than like, yeah, this is what I see. <laughs> and I think the best improvisers are just the people who are just like, this is the way I see the world. Exactly. And if you're going to be an artist of any sort, uh, it's... Naked because you're making yourself vulnerable to the world right. and admitting to the world that this is how I see the world right. and this is what I think. You know, so there's a there's a vulnerability in that mm-hmm. uh, and there's a risk in that. But this is why you're an artist is to share yourself with the world. Right. If you're trying to give the title that you think the teacher wants or you think the audience wants, you're going to fail every time or you're going to stay in a very safe place and no art is going to result. Clearly. From that. Clearly, clearly, and 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 what you're talking about is not is the idea of not bringing it up to your brain to weigh it out, or yeah. to measure it out, or to compare it, or to do a a, a historical survey of why or how it got to what it is that you may or may not say at that moment. <laughs> there's no fucking time to do that. <laughs> no, there's you know? no time to do that. So the idea of, and I think that what's happening now at I/O. Um, that level three, which is now called you, um, is great because it's teaching. It's the idea of what do you have to say? Who yeah. are you? What's your point of view? And the idea of teaching someone to accept their point of view is so important. And to not not accept their point of view, but to recognize that they have a point of view, and to not and to be decisive decisive about it. I was going to say not to be indecisive, but to be decisive about it. Because when I say not to be indecisive about it, then you've got to weigh it out and go, okay, what? how did the math just work? That's two negatives because positive which is right. Right? Instead of just going, that's the way I feel. That's the way I feel right now. I'm going to go do that right now. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what I want as a teacher. I don't know what I want as an audience member. I just want to see something unique. Right. Uh, and interesting. And every person is unique and interesting in their own way. You know, so it's kind of like, finding how to be the best possible version of yourself on stage. And that doesn't mean playing yourself, because I think it's boring to play yourself, but it just means being yourself. Do, right. the, do the kind of comedy that you want to do, and I think it's always going to look fresh. You know, uh, this Improv is satisfying when it's simultaneously surprising yet satisfying, right. i.e. your reaction as an audience member is, I never would have said that, yet that is the perfect thing to say uh, in, the, so, in that moment. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It's what is it that my partner wants me to say and then saying it. Like saying, okay, Craig does not want me to agree with him. He wants me to disagree with him. So I'm going to disagree <laughs> with him. And the audience is going to go, he disagreed with him. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. And at that moment, to, that, that every... I don't want you to spoon feed me. I don't want you to give me what I've seen before. I don't want this to be the first episode of a bad TV pilot. You know, I want you to go, I, I want you to challenge me. I don't want you to solve the fucking problem. And if you do solve the problem, you better have another problem right there, right then. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what I want to watch. I want to watch you get into trouble and I want to watch you get into trouble. And, and don't fucking be polite. It's amazing how much... Uh sitcom behavior is just ingrained in us and people will gravitate toward that and you can tell they're already bored with their scene 30 seconds into it but they feel like this is the scene i'm supposed to do right because this is like the comedy archetype as opposed to kind of carving out their own comedic territory that's unique to them right yeah i do a day where uh, i ask them to do the standard improv relationships boyfriend girlfriend 
husband, wife, doctor, patient, uh, but avoid cliche, stereotype, and sitcom choices. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you gave, you know, beginning improvisers a uh, brother-sister as a relationship, I guarantee nine out of ten scenes would be some variation on Get out of my room, Cindy. Right. right <laughs> you know, right, right. which is like, that sounds like a Brady Bunch scene. It is you know? a Brady Bunch Nobody scene. thinks about being a 61-year-old brother and a 56-year-old sister who run a jewelry shop in Queens together. Right. But I would much rather see that scene. Absolutely. Because that, <laughs> right, right. That's and a no, brother-sister relationship. It is. It is. It is. And, and also the idea of, um, uh, and you're talking about relationship, but there's also talking about um, suggestions for locations. Mm-hmm. Because we just start a scene in a doctor's office doesn't mean that we need any anybody who would be in a doctor's office to be in that doctor's office scene. So the idea of we've got a plumber and we've got two plumbers in a doctor's office. like, And they're not there to get healthy. You know? They're there (laughs) there to fix the leak. Exactly. They're there for something. Or maybe they're not even there to fix the leak. You know? Because like all that that means is there's these two things at this place. And that's all that that means. And anything that you bring into the scene you're bringing in. It's not something that we're organically developing at that moment. They're just, you know, if you get a suggestion, it's, it's a factor that you have to address in some way. At some but point. it's not the roadmap for you of like, you're supposed to do this scene. Right. You know? And I also, and I think that that has to, a lot to do with the idea of making a decisive choice. What do you feel at that moment? And, and those of us who work with actors uh, as teachers or as directors to say, okay, good. You can make the standard choice about that and that's okay, but know that that's already been made. Or you can tell me what you're feeling right now because you're feeling it anyway. Mm-hmm. And if you're feeling it anyway, then let's just have that be the thing that you follow. Um, but I have to let you know ahead of time at some point that the feelings that you have, that's great. You're entitled to those things. Not only entitled to it, but that's the difference between being an artist and being somebody that I've already, that, that, uh, being an artist and being um, a, a photocopy machine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I've been teaching for I think 17 years now. I think I'm coaching, I started coaching a year after I started classes at I.O. just because, you know, you needed warm bodies. You needed warm bodies on stage. You needed warm bodies to coach right, right away. I'm like, I have no fucking idea what I was telling people 20 years ago. Right, 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 I shudder to think what I was doing. I know that I would watch Harold's and I would take like cursive notes and longhand, you know, of like writing in each character name and of like now of like yeah, I could show you my notebook you would not understand a fucking thing it's just like squiggles and of like it makes sense to me I got rid of somehow. a bunch of those things for the, those very same reasons like I don't even know what who I see Pete and Dave I can read those names there but anyway but I would go you know in order through every scene and right. say of like okay this was great because of this you know of like you want to give them praise of right. like I you know I it's like anything of like it's something I've gotten much better at over the years and I think I feel like my job um, the comic book nerds always respond to this I say that my job is to be like Professor X and the X-Men you know you are mutants mm-hmm. with superpowers you right. already have these superpowers right. you just don't know how to use them yet. right so right. My, my job as Professor X is to figure out how to contain and focus your powers that you already have so like Cyclops and the X-Men has these eye lasers you know but he has to wear this protective shield <laughs> over his eye lasers otherwise he's going to shoot people with them <laughs> Constantly, so like there are some, you know, there's some improvisers who are just like raw out of the gates, and they're just fucking killing people with their eyes all the time. And it's just like you've got this power, figure out how to focus it. And there's other people who are more kind of like shy, and of like I don't have any powers. I'm right. like, yeah, yeah, you do. Right. You know, you just have to dig deeper into them somehow. So or, it's like I'm trying to chip away at what is already there rather than say. 
you know, in order to be an improviser, you need to be a little more like Craig Kukowski and right. do it this way. And right. like, I, I, you know, why would why want them to be more like me? Well, but the thing is, like, there are a couple of schools that that it won't be more like you, but it'll be more like what the school is yeah. to produce. Yeah, like those sort of things. And I feel like for me, that that for me, that is not attractive or interesting because at the end. At the end of the day, it's it's sending me in a direction that I that I won't not naturally go into, and I have to put something on in order to discover who it is that I am. Yeah, I feel like my job is how can I help you do what you're already doing better. Right. I call it I'm the midwife to your voice, <laughs> and at that moment, like what it is that you have, because I don't want to I don't want to uh, I don't want to quash your energy. I want you to understand that you have it. And mm-hmm. how for how you to, how you can channel it, mm-hmm. how you can control it. And I think about the play Equus. Um, are you familiar with the play Equus? It's been um, years, but there's yeah. horses. The horses and the horses a kid. Get blinded. Yeah, the blinded, and the kids like <laughs> the kids so like so much energy going on there. And one of the one of the aspects of the the play is the idea of stopping someone's energy, and it's like quashing someone's energy. It's essentially killing someone's energy, but it's and it, and then uh, metaphorically also killing. The, um, the embodiment of that energy, mm. metaphorically. So I'm not there to stop you from having energy. I am here to say, this is the energy that you have and realize that you can use it and you could, you could laser beam people's eyes or you can <laughs> use it to heat up food later. You know? <laughs> you know, what is it that you're going to do with it? But know that you have it yeah. and, and know that you have it and no one else has it. And for you to have it, um, that's a beautiful thing. It's it's really fun to help people discover their superpowers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then just to, and begin to uh, to start to come in control of the powers that they have, and you see them get excited about it, you know. And then they don't have to be uh, forced into some other package that they just don't fit in. Right. You know. Right. Right. And I, you know, for other schools, you know, it's a valid thing of like, we want improv to be done this way. You got to learn it this way of like, fine. You know, if you want to be a part of that school, then you should do it that way. Right. But then you're going to be expected to deliver, you know, uh, in, in that way. And I, I've just never been that kind of improviser. No, I can't be packaged in that way. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like to work on all my skill sets, including the things that I'm not as strong mm-hmm. at, you know. So I, I think it would, you know, it would be worthwhile to work on those things. I think it's all valid, you know, and I, I tell my students study as many places as possible. Steal what you like, discard what you don't, because right. ultimately you're going to reinvent the art form in your own image anyway. Right. You know, which is what I did. Right. And that's that helps you get your voice out because you're finding different ways for you, different tools that you're using that mesh with what it is that you're doing in order for you to to, to connect with some people. Yeah. There's certain things that I don't want to do because it doesn't interest me. And that's not to say that it's good or bad. It, uh, and yet at times I do find myself uh, my 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 ire going up where I where I have students who are um, I went to this place and they kept forcing this thing on me and I didn't want to do it and they and 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 I look at those students and I say and I think then go away don't go there that's not for you yeah um, because they do take it personally and I feel like you can't take it personally you yeah. got to know that that's that's a venue that's not for you that's a relationship that isn't meant for you. 
Yeah, at our age and our realm of experience of like, we know what we don't like to do. Right. You know, and that's a freeing thing. Very freeing. <laughs> to know that I'm going to do it once and I'm going to go, you know, okay, fine. I did stand up once. It's like, that's great. That's yeah. really great. You guys, you go at it. You folks, <laughs> you go at it. Um, I've done comedy sports a couple of times. It's like, you go at it. That's awesome. Mm. You go at it. I, I, that doesn't, that, that's something that I really respect, but it's not something that I'm really interested in. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it, improv is a broad art form, you know, and uh, like dance, you know, has ballet, it has tap, it has right. jazz, you know, it has modern. Right. And improv is a similar thing where, you know, the people who do comedy sports are amazing at what they do. Oh, you know, man. People who do right. UCB are great at what they do. People right. who do uh, narrative, you know, Johnstonian stuff, they're great at what they do. You know, I'm great at what I do. I think, that, I think that's and an important thing like, to know, too. And they're all different <clears throat> ways of expressing this art form and it's really interesting that as we've i think that one of the things that for those of us who've who've you know because you weren't that much further behind me in in the evolution of this or the education of this or just the you know going through the blossoming blooming of of the whole thing is to watch how big this has gotten yeah, it's been crazy. <coughs> like I, I was talking about my college improv troupe earlier. Like I, I what feel was the like, name of the troupe? Uh, it or IT got it. improv theater. Got it. Um, uh-huh. We were actually trained by a group from Yale that had been trained by Sharna. And uh, what was that group? Purple Crayon. Purple Crayon. So because Phil Lamar was part of the Purple Crayon. Do you know Phil Lamar? I do know Phil. Yeah. Phil Lamar. I knew all those people because those people were studying when I was at IO. Interesting. Okay. So we all took classes together. Uh, I'm not sure how it exactly happened because it was, you know, a few years before I got to William and Mary. But from what I understand, Sharna went to Yale, did a workshop with Purple Crayon. Right. There was a member of Purple Crayon who had a friend at William and Mary, mm-hmm. and in like, and so like they had one three-hour workshop with Sharna. Then person from Purple Crayon came down to Williamsburg, mm-hmm. did one three-hour workshop with IT, wow. uh, taught them, you know, what they took of the Herald, you know. Right. So we, you know, this is before Truth and Comedy. This is before the internet where you had any access to know what other people were doing, you know. So mm-hmm. we were kind of in a vacuum doing what we had learned from one three-hour workshop. And at that point, the group had been together for maybe five years. So this wow. is each, each class then passing on to the next generation. As people graduate, you induct new members into the group. And it's like, improv needs to be done with these three rules. Right. The Herald is done in this way. Right. You know, we learned a very regimented thing. And me and a couple other guys in the group would occasionally be like, hey, you guys want to do it? We call it a free form. You guys want to do a free form? <laughs> Uh, and other people in the group would be like, ah, I don't, you know, we did mostly short form, but we did do Herald. Uh-huh. Um, and our free form was much, much closer to what a Herald actually is right. than what we called the Herald, which was like this very regimented package for uh, for short form games. Right. Uh, and then a little bit of scene, time dash scene work thrown in there as well. So so that's that's interesting. And to look where things are right now. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as I knew, we were one of the few improv groups in the country, and we went to the very first college improv festival at Skidmore, which was uh, run, created by David Miner, uh, uh-huh. now Tina Fey's uh, manager. T- uh, David Miner, who was an intern at Second at City. At Second City, yeah. So that's how I know David Miner. He started Three the, Arts? He started the Skidmore uh, Improv he College did. Festival, which I believe still runs to this day. William & Mary was one of the groups that went there, and Skidmore, and then a bunch of Ivy League groups. So that was kind of like the first like summit of like these improv groups from different colleges sharing information and stuff. But now every college has multiple troops. Right. Most high schools have improv troops. Right. Now. Right. And right. 
the the key thing is like if you start improv classes when you're 13 and you keep up all throughout your teen years you're not going to have those uh you're going to keep your chops up and you're not going to have those formative teen experiences that crush your soul Absolutely. and your humanity right. and then you know so a lot of you know i always th- feel like the later in life you start improv, the harder it is. Not right. that, you know, there aren't people who can start in their 40s and, you know, become very, very good right. improvisers, right. but it's more work because you've built up all these layers of resistance over the years that need to be chipped away Absolutely. at. And I think for a lot of us, it just dates back to the, or our horrific teenage experiences. Right. But I think if you can keep that joy and openness going that you learn from improv, you know, so now you get like these... You know, 22-year-old improvisers have been doing it for 10 years already. And they're really fucking good. Right, right. Great. Let's, uh, let, that's really a nice summation there. <laughs> Let's stop there. Okay. What do you think? Sure. That was really good, right? Thanks, buddy. That was, <laughs> that was a blast. Thank you for listening to the ADD Comedy Podcast. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. For more information on ADD Comedy, you can visit our website at www.theaddcomedytour.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ADD Comedy Pod. If you're in the Los Angeles area and you're interested in taking a class with Dave, you can find that information at his website at www.davidrosowski.com. Sound services for the ADD Comedy Podcast was brought to you by Post Apocalyptic. <laughs>